electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, 4,500. That's where Tom Lee sees the S&P 500 heading by the end of the month. What he says will get us there and the trades that will lead the way. Plus, we're tracking the moves and take two interactive in Simon Property Group after their earnings reports. Those calls are underway. We're bringing you all the headlines and turned on the semi-stock that brought the SMH chip ETF to brand new highs today. We'll give you the name later in the show. But we start off with a $29 billion fintech deal that sent shares of Square surging today. Kate Rooney's got all the details. Hi, Kate. Hey, Melissa. Shares of Square are closing more than 10% higher today on the back of news that it is buying Afterpay. That's the Australian fintech that offers installment loans. This is a $29 billion deal in all stock. The price tag was about a 30% premium to where Afterpay closed in Australia on Friday. And the deal is expected to close in the first quarter of 2022. Square also reported second quarter results earlier than expected as a part of this announcement. Gross profit jumped about 91% from a year ago, so that also helped the stock today. We had CEO Jack Dorsey highlighting younger consumers ditching traditional revolving credit. Instead, he says they want those interest-free installment loans. CFO or Square CFO Amrita Huja telling CNBC and squawk on the street this morning that this is really a win-win for merchants and consumers. It drives sales to businesses, she says, and it tends to be a cheaper way of borrowing. Competition in this space, though, is heating up. A firm shares getting a boost today. PayPal, Klarna, American Express Now, and J.P. Morgan Chase all have buy now, pay later options. And Apple is reportedly working on a similar product offering with Goldman Sachs. Many of these companies don't charge interest, at least for the first year. They mostly rely on debit and link to consumers' bank accounts. Many of them strike a deal with the merchants on the back end, and they profit from that relationship. They also often don't use a traditional FICO score. Some analysts, though, worry about the debt load in these cases and what they call stacking debt, meaning paying for some of these installment loans with credit cards. It's also seen as a threat to the traditional card issuers and some of the money center banks whose main profit engines are still those interest-bearing loans and fees. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney, um, with the details on that deal, Karen, you've been for a long time a fan of Square, although the valuation's high, a fan of J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you think are the ripple effects for uh, incumbent lenders, incumbent financial institutions. Right. Well, if you're a bank, you know, you... You've got to be worried about fintech from every angle, right? And, and Jamie Dimon went on about that, and they know they have to be more nimble and, you know, sort of speak to that younger customer who's so used to doing everything online, so they're very comfortable doing something like Afterpay. But I can't quite get to... It, something doesn't make sense to me. The square multiple trades... At something, you know, 170 times. Okay, 170. 170 times, maybe with these great earnings. Okay, good for them. And yet, JP Morgan trades at 11 times. Now, if Square's whole plan is to be the everything to everyone, the bank, 
to everyone, there's a giant disconnect there. And that that's the part that's sort of interesting to me. Square has done, I mean, they seem to be everywhere you want to be, to use the visa, um, to, to use the visa slogan. But I, I just, the valuation is crazy. This, this, I mean, this deal, probably good for them. It's great. Their customers want it. I'm surprised how well the stock did in the face of a $29 billion deal. That won't be easy to integrate, and they don't get approval until next year, probably. Well, I, I love it for Square for a couple of reasons. I, I own Square. I had a much bigger position. I have kind of a legacy position that's down probably 70 percent. I faded it too early, and it was because of the valuation at some point. But look, what's happened to Square in the last 18 months is that, that cash app is everything for everybody. And, and I think they, they, they hear, they're bridging basically buyer and seller. The relationships with the merchants great. Um, but, but, you know, let me throw out ARPU again. Again, what this means for Square on that cash app, the ARPU for all all, for just one product on Afterpay exceeds all of that for all of Square's products on ARPU, average revenue per user. So it's raised the game. It's raised the quality of those transactions. And, and, and Square with that valuation care. I mean, look, I love the fact that they've used an overvalued stock price as currency in an all-stock deal to buy an innovative new age company at a time when this is where Square is supposed to be. And I believe the combined management teams here are going to be where you want to be for the long. So I think this is a game changer for Square. I mean, maybe more companies should use their record high stock prices to make deals these days. I mean, cash that in. Um, Brian Kelly, when you start thinking about transactions like this and the business it gets uh, Square into, are you concerned at all about uh, the credit risk that Square then takes onto its balance sheet? Um, And you have to wonder, I mean, just as sort of like somebody observing the sector, if buy now, pay later is is the next greatest growth engine for, for credit these days, is that some sort of you know, risk to the system, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's great to make le- loans when the economy is okay uh, and consumers are in good shape, but how about when things right. really turn pear-shaped? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think as investors and traders, you need to mark this down. I don't think that credit concern matters today. It clearly doesn't because the stock is up and it looks like it wants to break out through 280. But you do want to mark this down. So if you get a recession, this is going to work in reverse to Square. It's not going to be as great. That being said, the one thing that Square always touts is that they do have their own proprietary credit rating model that they use for their merchants and how much they're going to actually uh, lend, not lend out, but basically uh, cover for the merchant so that if you're a merchant, you can get paid a little bit earlier. Um, So Square thinks they have a better technology. So, you know, all other things being equal, this should be a really good integration for Square. All I know is I'm looking at what the market's telling me. It's telling me a couple different things. Nobody seems to care about the P.E. Someday it'll matter. It doesn't matter today. And it looks like it wants to break out above 280. And I think that's all you can say about Square. Yeah. And this just affirmed Affirmed, Jeff Mills, in terms of its valuation. I mean, valuations for all of these sort of um, threats to traditional lending because they're, they could be fintech integrated. They're very attractive targets right now. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I think they're attractive because of the growth. I mean, buy now, pay later is growing extremely quickly. You can look at Afterpay just as an example there. But I think sales were up over 100 percent year over year. So, you know, that's going to translate to other companies in the business. And that's why I do think it is an attractive acquisition for Square. You know, Tim mentioned ARPU, you know, average revenue per user within Cash App. This is only going to bolster that. Cash App has 
fewer users than Venmo, still generate significantly more revenue, X what's going on in Bitcoin. So I think this only goes to serve as an additional growth engine for Cash App. Uh, and you know, ultimately, like BK said, you saw really good support for the stock in mid-May at the rising 200-day moving average. It looks like it wants to break out around that 275 level. So I think it's going to be a good acquisition here going forward. The stock price is telling you that. Just really quickly on banks, I know we might hit on it more, uh, but I did think it was very interesting today if you look at the way banks traded. It was the larger banks that traded up or at least underperformed less. So it, it is the J.P. Morgans and Goldman Sachs of the world, the banks that have been able to invest in this sort of fintech to protect their businesses. And then you look at the KRE, the regional bank ETF, uh, down almost twice as much. I think that recovered a little bit into the close. But uh, the, the market is clearly telling you sort of the winners and losers and where the risks are relative to traditional banking. Are, are there winners and losers? I mean, obviously, there, if there are winners, there are losers, theoretically. <clears throat> but at the same time, this is capturing a customer that was previously not there. And so in terms of losing that customer, I guess in theory, from a total addressable market standpoint, J.P. Morgan or an incumbent financial institution may have, quote unquote, lost it. But they haven't lost it in that they didn't have that customer traditionally, that younger consumer with no credit background. Right. Well, one uh, that's a good point. But I'm just looking at other potential mm-hmm. losers. Visa right. and MasterCard were both down today. I don't know if it's because of the sharing arrangement between the buy now, pay later. Um, I'm not sure. But that was sort of interesting to me. I think, you know, the J.P. Morgans and the Bank Americas and the Capital Ones of the world and Citibank also, who all have big credit card portfolios, they, they, this is a wake-up call. They've known it's coming. I mean, right. you've heard, heard them talk about buy now, pay later, but they're just not as attractive to that younger, new not banked person, maybe. I think for the merchant, too, let's be clear. I mean, it, it, this is friend, not foe. I think, you know, credit card companies are not seen as friend by merchants, right? right. They're seen as parasites. And, and by the way, that may not be fair, um, but I, I think they're talking about the fees. And, and when you think about the relationship in buy now, pay later, um, almost tailoring and understanding the consumer and giving the merchant a better opportunity to know their consumer, to get closer, to have alignment. And, and I think that's a big deal. Um, I, I also think that what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, how about the, the earnings by Lending Club last Last week. I mean, where you're seeing non-conventional banks that are so far ahead of the legacy banks. Um, and L- Lending Club was up 6% today after having a, a 50% move one day last week. I mean, there's, there's a message being sent that there's, there's not only, you know, all kinds of disruption and, and uh, you know, decentralized finance, but that legacy banks are losing out to banks that have already moved into this space. And, and it may be tough to catch up. And we've seen that in other parts of the economy. So. Yeah. Um, Brian Kelly, what's your take on on the losers in this whole thing? And would you agree that Visa and MasterCard, um, Capital One, that they could be losers here? Yeah, probably more Capital One than anything else in the sense that Capital One tends to have uh, customers that have a lower credit score. And I'm, you know, being presumptuous here saying somebody who's going to do that buy now, pay later uh, doesn't have the credit that somebody at maybe who's getting an American Express card does. So I think, you know, lower down on the credit scale is going to be a loser. But I would say in general, I do think the large banks, they're under attack from everywhere. And my bigger picture view is that the the financial services splits into two. I mean, any type of transactional banking, the price is going to zero. You're not going to make money off that, whether it be cryptocurrencies or central bank digital currencies. So then you're going to have to make money off of some of this lending product. And if you're getting attacked by Square and all these other places and decentralized finance, it's not really a great growth story for these bigger banks. So I I think they're just challenged at this point. 
For more on what this deal could mean for fintech and the big banks, let's bring in Sanjay Sakrani, managing director at KBW, a Stiefel company. Sanjay, great to have you with us. So just to pick up where we left off, um, who do you think the biggest losers are? Who gets um, displaced the most when buy now, pay later really catches steam? So I think what the market is telling you, it's twofold. One is sort of the incumbent payment systems, because what's happening is these transactions are being captured through uh, ecosystems or clusters of consumers, whether it be Square, PayPal, or Apple. And then it's also perceived maybe it's the financial institutions like the consumer lenders I follow. So I cover credit card companies and and people are nervous that this is going to disintermediate their lending capabilities. Would you agree with that, though? I mean, does your business model and how you view some of these credit card companies that you that you cover change um, with something like a buy now, pay later? Do you think their models have to change as well? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I think that there's definitely some validity to the merchant processors that are plugged into this merchant, some of those volumes being steered towards aggregators. So if this was a transaction coming into a merchant acquirer, this can now go through an aggregator like Square or PayPal, and that changes the way that process is is processed. And so I think that definitely there's some risk there. Whether or not it disintermediates a credit card loan, I kind of feel like it's a different product. To me, a buy now, pay later product requires a much greater outlet, significant outlay of funds in a given month relative to a credit card product. So I think it's a different loan. There's a different loan attribute. So I don't know that it does at this point in time. It could also be a good entry level type of loan for someone who doesn't have credit and then can be graduated to a credit card loan. Sunday, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about the credit quality here and not just for Afterpay, but more broadly, we seem, you know, we're at a very good place in the credit quality cycle. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I heard some of the conversations earlier, and I kind of agree. We're really early in an economic recovery, so I think there's lots of opportunity to, you know, for the consumer to lever up and for ish, for lenders to make good loans. I think as this recovery becomes long in the tooth, that's when we've got to start worrying about things. So at this point, I think it's fine. I think we just got to come back to, you know, who are these loans being made to? Are they being made to people like us? Or are they being, are they being made to people that really can't get credit today or don't want credit? And I think it's a little bit of that today. Hey, Sanjay, it's Tim. So there's multiple reasons why Square's stock was up today, I think. Um, one may be the enterprise merchant uh, relationship that Square kind of eases up into from its SMB roots, small, medium-sized businesses. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of benefits Square twofold. One, it gives them a product in buy now, pay later to cross-sell to their 70 million plus uh, cash app consumers. And then it also gives them access to the uh, large merchants that Afterpay has relationships with, right? So to the extent that these large enterprises didn't want to make uh, an integration with Square in the past, now they have one with Afterpay, and that allows Square's customers to potentially have access to those merchants. So I think the benefits are twofold, among others, which such as it gives Square an opportunity to grow outside the U.S., where it's very heavy. Um, last question, Sanjay, and that, and that is based on what you now know about Afterpay, are you comfortable 
with the with the potential credit risk that Square is now acquiring um, in that future period when things may not be so great, uh, consumer credit may not be as high a quality as it is now? Yeah, look, I mean, I think these are very short duration loans. So, you know, we're talking two month loans um, and we'll have to see how large a part of this business of their business it is at that point in time when the cycle is about to turn. But I think our call just generally is we're really early into an economic expansion and it's probably not something you need to worry about right now. All right. Sanjay, thanks for your time. Sanjay Sakrani, we appreciate it. Jeff Mills, what's your take here? Um, well, first of all, I think, you know, the credit risk versus is the acquisition a good idea or not? You know, I think having the capability uh, and adding that to the, to the quiver that the clients can access for Square and Cash App, I think that probably outweighs the credit risk going forward, especially given the size it's going to be of the business, at least in the near term. But let me just go back to banks really quickly, because it's very clear that this is sort of an existential threat to banks. And this is an issue that they're going to have to deal with via technology development and, and other investments. But I did think it was interesting, just from a trading perspective, I would have expected banks and financials generally to be off a lot more than they actually were today. You know, with the 10-year pushing through 120, uh, you may have expected a little bit of a bloodbath in the space. Not necessarily the case. You've seen some pretty extreme outflows from banks, financials, generally speaking. So that actually makes me feel good from a trading perspective that we might be finding some footing here. You might be able to play banks, financials as a trade. Yeah, Karen, I'm, I'm sure you're surprised by that action, too. Well, I'm thinking about the KRE, which is the regional bank versus the XLF. Right. So these big money center banks do have a lot of other levers. You know, they have their investment banking business, asset management, which is a great business. They have capital markets. All of those have been huge. So that but if you look at the regional banks, they don't have a lot of that. And this core product, you know, this picking off that customer, that's a very difficult situation to be in. Coming up, markets may have kicked off August with a bit of a whimper, but Tom Lee says to expect them to go out with a bang. He'll break that down and break down what he's watching just a few. Plus, there's some earnings coming your way. Take two and Simon Property on the move after reporting results. We're digging into the names next. Fast Money's back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. Shares of Simon Property and Take-Two both on the move after reporting results. We've got full team coverage. Let's start off with Courtney Reagan, who's been listening in on Simon's call. Hey, Court. Hi, Melissa. So Simon Property shares are higher after hours by more than 3.5%. The mall owner reporting stronger than expected earnings and just slightly higher revenues. Net operating income increased more than 16% year over year with portfolio net operating income. So this includes the Taubman Centers that now owns as well as other segments. That increased 30 Funds from operations, that FIFO number, increased more than 52% year-over-year to $1.217 billion. CEO David Simon says he's, quote, pleased with the profitability and substantial improvement in cash flow in the second quarter. And Simon also notes increasing shopper traffic, retailer sales, and leasing activity at his centers. Occupancy stands at 91.8%, base minimum rent per square foot, just over $55. Simon is also upping its full-year guidance and increasing its dividend from $1.40 to $1.50 per share. On the ongoing conference call, CEO David Simon says government restrictions are still impacting results in some areas, but also says it signed nearly 1,400 leases in the second quarter with a, quote, significant number still in the pipeline. He also added that a recent meeting of his leasing team reported to him the most active deal committee in several years. Mr. Simon noted that retail sales in the centers are up 13 percent in the first half of 2021 when compared to the first half of 2019, so a non-pandemic year. SPG shares are up more than 100 percent in a year flat over the last month. Melissa? All right, Courtney, thank you. Um, Let's trade this one. Karen, they did raise their full-year guidance, (coughs) although you got to wonder if second-quarter levels are... um, Peak, exactly, because there's all this pent-up demand. People want to go out. Will that continue going into the back half? Right. I think, well, we'll see if this is sort of transitory traffic, but some of these <laughs> leases that they're signing up, I think will, what those will be for some amount of time, right? They had, the occupancy was better than projected. In addition, their expenses were lower. So those are two good things to have going. Um, you know, nice yield. Um, I, I, I'm concerned about that as well. So I don't own it. They've done a great job. They were able to cut the price on that Taubman deal. Right. Hopefully those will be good for them, but uh, it's not for me. BK, I know you love malls and, and you go to a mall every chance you get, but you're not like the average that person who might not always. I mean, prior to the pandemic, it was the death of the malls. And now malls are seeing a renaissance, if you will, because people are emerging from their cocoons. <laughs> right. So how long, right. How long is that mall going to be? And as you mentioned, I like malls when I, you know, I tend to walk around malls for a little bit of exercise out there and uh, you know, they're definitely busier than they were, but I share Karen's concern that is this as good as it gets? I mean, the stock is up a hundred percent from the November lows. This is, you know, we've had the reopening. We know that uh, people savings are declining uh, we saw what happened with Amazon. Their earnings weren't as great. Maybe people have been going to some malls, but I'd be very concerned that this is the peak. And, you know, maybe people go to malls. I don't know about the Taubman. I mean, I know Tim likes to go to the diesel outlet at Taubman a lot, but I'm not sure even his level of spending is going to keep it there. <laughs> you know that, BK. I mean, acid wash jeans, by the way. I mean, hey, can you get They're enough on of sale, them? right? They're back. I mean, thank God. <laughs> Up next, let's get to take two earnings. Shares of the video game company sinking in the after hours. The company's called is underway. 
Let's get to Josh Lipton, who never wears acid wash. He's got the details. Josh. <laughs> so, Melissa, remember heading into this print, this stock was down about 15 percent uh, this year. It's now in the red here in the after hours. As for the print, net bookings beat, but Q2 net bookings guidance came in weaker than expected. The company reiterating guidance for the year. Andrew Erkowitz at Jeffrey saying the June quarter better than expected. It appears that engagement is holding up, he says, but September guidance, that was weaker than expected. Take-Two did not take up full-year guidance because games are being delayed, he notes. He still rates this one a buy, by the way, though. Attractively valued, he says. Strong record of execution. New content will be in high demand, he bets. On the call, CEO Strauss-Zelnick saying the new fiscal year is off to a great start, in his words. Grand Theft Auto 5 sales significantly above expectations. NBA 2K21, the number one sports title in the U.S., he says. The outlook, though, he did just reiterate that guidance. There has been some movement in some planned releases. In other words, the schedule has shifted for the companies calling two immersive core titles. We needed more time to polish them. Strauss Selznick says it was not COVID-related, he told analysts. Productivity remains high. Questions on the market and demand, Strauss Zelnick saying that post-pandemic demand is still higher than pre-pandemic demand, but it is moderating as people return to some kind of normal for now. Back to you all. I'm sorry, Josh. Can you repeat that again? That's sort of, it, it felt like it was contradictory, those two statements, that it's, it's still high um, well, I think he's, in the he's pandemic, re- but then yeah, moderating... He's reiterating a point I think he's tried to make for the past few quarters. His bet has been, listen, the market has gotten bigger. There's a lot more people all around the world that have come to that market that now discover video games as fun and entertaining. But he has bet, um, and this goes back a few quarters, as people can return to some kind of new normal, we hope that there would be some type of moderation there in in a bigger market, though. That's his bet. Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Tim, um, what do you think? Look, I like the stock. I, you know, it's been dead money for a year. So just about I mean, the themes we all know. Interactive entertainment is is hot. It's going to remain hot. Uh, I think interactive media. I think you know some of these companies at some point will be absorbed by larger media companies. The stock trades uh, 28, 29 times forward, which is uh, you know five to ten percent cheap of its one, three, and five year averages. So you're not buying an expensive stock here. You're buying a stock that really uh, all guidance is that fiscal 23 is going to be a massive year. The pipeline is coming on. That's where Stroud is guiding, and I think we have to believe them. I, I, you know, you can't really fault them for being uh, in the right spot when everyone wanted NBA 2K when there were no sports out. Um, I, you know, so those pullbacks in that year-over-year engagement, none of us are surprised by this. Uh, I like the story. I like the pipeline. Jeff, you agree? This is an overreaction here in the after hours. Yeah, I'm with Tim on this one. Look, I think that the company's still positioned for really strong growth. They have, they have a huge content pipeline. They probably have the strongest intellectual property in the industry. They're continuing to grow in mobile. They're probably going to do more M&A. We've seen a lot of positive earnings revisions from analysts. So I think the story longer term is very good. I think we talked about the stock maybe in December of last year, and I was a little bit worried about 2021, just given the fact that earnings growth wasn't going to be incredibly strong with a company that at the time was trading at well over 30 times forward. So, um, you know, they could chop around here in the near term for sure. But I I certainly like the stock down 18 percent from the highs than I did toward the end of last year. Uh, So I'd be buying on any weakness. I'd look to 160 for support. All right. Coming up, a strong end to the summer. Fundstrat's Tom Lee joins us next to break down why he says stocks will rally through August. Plus, chip stocks ripping higher today, pushing the SMH Semiconductor ETF to an all-time high. Our move of the day is coming up in just a few. Do not move. Fast Money's back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. August getting off to a cold start. The S&P 500 and Dow getting hit in a late-day sell-off while the Nasdaq eked out again. Stocks getting tripped up over worries about Delta variant slowing economic growth. But our next guest believes it'll still be a winning month for stocks. Let's bring in Tom Lee, head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. He's also a CNBC contributor. Tom, great to have you with us. Thanks, What makes you so confident about August? Um, Well, I think markets are anxious about two things. Things you already addressed, you know, one is the Delta variant across the U.S. and the fear that this could trigger new lockdowns. And the second, I think, especially coming into play today, is that the tenure continues to sink lower. So despite expectations across the street for inflation and higher real rates to drive higher nominal rates, uh, the tenure is sinking. So I think investors are pretty nervous about those two things. But I think between now and month end, uh, you know, we think the odds are high that the Delta variant could peak. One of the reasons we believe that is hospitalizations incrementally for COVID are actually beginning to roll over. And the second is that, um, you know, I think the 10-year is sort of at an important juncture here. It's near the 100-week moving average, and it looks like it could potentially be reversing. So I think you could have higher rates into month end or Delta rolling over, and both would trigger a risk-on rally. The Delta rolling over, and we've seen the charts of the U.K., the cases peaking. We've seen sort of a similar chart if you overlay that with, I think it's Missouri in terms of its caseload. And so those, those things are very promising in terms of, of data. But in terms of your call that the 10-year yield will actually emerge from this critical juncture and go higher, is that based on anything or is that just your belief? that Because it sounds like this whole bullish call for August is predicated on these two things. And one of those things is, is sort of just a hold your finger to the wind kind of call. Oh, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, markets are unpredictable and interest rates are even more unpredictable. So, again, I would I would probably be more appropriately saying I think the probabilities of rates perform rising more than consensus expects is what we think will happen in August if the Delta variant starts to roll over. So I think interest rates and cases and markets are all kind of connected here. But really, over the next couple of weeks, we think that plays out favorably for stocks. Hey, Tom, I'm obviously concerned, like everyone socially, about Delta variants. I'm, I'm not worried about the long-term impact on the economy, frankly. I'm a lot more worried about the Fed's role in the market. So uh, as you look to the next couple months, because it's all about the Fed, and, and you know, Lael Brannard was out there late last week, and, and I think her voice is probably as loud as it's ever been relative to her place in the Fed, about, you know, the Fed's got to wait for at least September data. Um, that probably doesn't come out till October. There's not a Fed meeting till November. I mean, doesn't this give you kind of the view that the Fed is not in your face until probably late October, November. Uh, Yeah, Tim, that's a great point. I mean, markets really should worry about the Fed because the Fed is one of the most important influences on the market. And while last week's meeting might have had some hawkish surprises, ultimately the Fed can't, you know, the Fed has no crystal ball greater than the markets. And if it can't see around the Delta variant and the hesitation it's creating among corporates and even OPEC, I'm not sure that Anyone should say the Fed is suddenly more hawkish. I think it does give the Fed a dovish tilt. And as you know, a dovish tilt is great for stocks. Hey, Tom, it's BK. So let me ask you about Bitcoin, because what we've seen with Bitcoin, it has not been correlated to many assets until recently. We see 
the correlation with the S&P 500 growing, the correlation with copper growing a bit. So does, does Bitcoin fit into this entire framework of the, the wall of worry, or is there something different going on there? Um, well, you know, Bitcoin is, is volatile, Brian, but uh, I've tended to view Bitcoin as a risk-on asset. And I think especially outside the U.S., it's probably a proxy for risk-taking much more than the local stock markets um, you know, globally. And in the second half, I mean, I think that if Delta rolls over and interest rates start to stabilize, everything rallies. I think Bitcoin's holding up really well. You know, it's at the upper end of this 30 to 40,000 range. Obviously, it took a hit today because of some of the, uh, you know, the infrastructure bills, the tax code around brokers and crypto, but also there have been some actions within the crypto community. But um, yeah, I'm optimistic on Bitcoin rallying into your end. Tom, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. Jeff Mills, what do you think of this everything rallies kind of call? In particular, energy, which had a terrible month of July, um, and technology, which Fundstrat recently upgraded. Yeah, well, I think you've seen some extremes across the board. Energy being a place where you had 0% of stocks in the energy sector trading above its 50-day moving average. So I think there are opportunities there. And I think you've seen similar things in rate. So I think you can make the rate call technical. If you look at TLT, for example, flows into TLT. So people betting on rates going lower are now approaching the 95th percentile. So a pretty good contraindicator that I think we're closer to a bottom than not in interest rates. And because I think that, and because I don't think Delta shuts down the world economy, I would rather be in places that have already experienced some level of pain and are better positioned for an economy that I think is supportive of cyclical market leadership. And I I look at the way interest rates and growth have behaved, and I'm surprised as rates again have come down that you haven't seen more outperformance in growth. So perhaps there are the winds of change again relative to market leadership. And you can look at industrial metals like copper, there's strength there. You can look at some of the classic resource names like BHP and Rio starting to outperform. And then even looking at European and Asian cyclicals, you know, those were areas of the market that actually led U.S. cyclicals back in 2020 in the fall uh, before we saw that leadership shift here. So we're seeing that again. Uh, so I think I would rather be positioned there going forward. I mean, to Jeff's point, IGV today, you would expect it to be up a lot is you, flat. You would. You would. Uh, also, when Jeff mentioned Winds of Change, I know it's one of your favorite uh, songs by the Scorpions. And I know you were kind of about to start Scorpions whistling that. With a slip that in with an SC. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think investors need to stick to their guns on having views. Like today you had weak ISM and some PMIs around the world and suddenly growth's off the table. And I realize the 10 years been telling us something now for, for three to four months. But but look, if you believe in reflation trades and if you believe in banks and you believe that, that if anything that the Fed is going to have to move at some point, you want to own some of these industrials. And, and I just think that there's been a lot of opportunities to buy weakness. Right. Stay there. Coming up, our move of the day, the SMH Semiconductor ETF posting fresh record highs as semi-surge. We're breaking down the move next, plus shares of GE losing some power today as the company's reverse stock split takes effect. The traders are plugging into that trade and fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the SMH Semiconductor ETF posting a new all-time high in today's session. The move led by a huge surge in on-semi. Shares climbing nearly 12% after the company reported record revenue for the quarter. It was the stock's best day since April 2020. And check out Micron popping after the bell after the company initiated a quarterly cash dividend of $0.10 a share. Brian Kelly, um, where do you go in the semi-trade, if anywhere? 
Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense, right? If I look at the semis broadly, that's where the growth is going to be. So on a day where we have oil down and we have the 10-year yield down, you want to go where that organic growth is, and we're seeing that in the semis. I have been a huge fan of NVIDIA. I still think you can look at NVIDIA, but if you just want a broad base, let's get into the semis, then you, you do the SMH. But I like NVIDIA. The other part to this, which is kind of nice, is if there is going to be a reflation, and if Tom Lee's correct and we're going to get this rally and Delta's going to turn over, the semis also act as a cyclical type of name. And so you can get that kind of double kicker in these. So that's an interesting point that we often talk about in terms of semis being the true cyclical in the market. So if that is the case, okay. Tim. I feel like you're just shaping up. I feel like a there's, there's a question like there's buried in here somewhere. What do we got? Well, right now, the premium is afforded to the companies that have the growth. In an environment in which the economy turns, things are supercharged, et cetera, et cetera, and you want to be in cyclicals, does Intel catch a similar bid? Is it I mean, what what happens? How does that play out in well, that environment? Yeah, I, I think Intel is seemingly has more leverage to the economy and, and would probably be seen also as a longer term play on some of their strengths right now, especially in data center and things that would probably be more emblematic of more broader enterprise growth. So, yeah, I, I like it. I think it's more what we're talking about and how to trade the market. When you have a period of growth and reaching for reflation, reaching for that, you're going to see you're going to see semiconductors underperform. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we saw that before, right? The semiconductor. That's great irony. I'm sorry, isn't it? Because like, what? The, the, yes, because the, the, the of the growth. Under, yeah. Right. And they would be involved in the growth. But yet the valuations already reflect growth for quite some time. Uh. And so if we get to that multiples on the market have to change because rates are going to go higher, they're going to be negatively affected. Interesting, the dividend initiation. It used to be like the death knell for stocks. Right. Once you went into a dividend, you know. Right. Yeah. No growth. But no, not here. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Good for them. <laughs> All right. Coming up, shares of GE powering down as the company reverse stock splits takes effect. We'll break down the action next. And from GE to GM, options traders are kicking the tires on shares of General Motors ahead of earnings on Wednesday. We'll tell you how they're playing this one. And Fast Money comes right back. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at GE shares dropping today as a company's one for eight reverse stock split takes effect. GE originally approved the split at an investor meeting on May 4th. Since that date, the stock has fallen by more than 17 percent. Tim, why the heck did they do this? (laughs) Well, I've been kind of smoldering on this one since it was announced, I think, in March or April. Uh, But but Larry Culp said he wanted the stock to have a stock price in line with its peers, like Honeywell, for example. Now, I mean, if you want to have a stock price that's in line with your peers, how about performing like your peers? I mean, Honeywell is, is basically over the last 20 years, it was a $30 stock that's gone to a $240 stock. You folks can do that math. GE is the stock that's gone completely the opposite. In fact, in fact, GE, before its 8 to 1 reverse split, which usually happens to companies that are about to go out of business, and I don't think that's what's right. happening with or GE. Or get delisted, yeah, actually. You know, but, but, but is... is actually was a higher dollar stock price than Honeywell 20 years ago. Look where these two have diverged. It's, it kind of underscores how sad the GE story is, I, I hate to say. Yeah. Jeff, your take. Yeah, I'm with Tim here. I mean, it's typically not a good sign, right? I went back and looked, and I was pretty surprised to see this only happened five times in the S&P since 2012. You know, it, it obviously doesn't change the value of the company, just like a regular stock split doesn't change the value of the company. And, 
you know, it really is smoke and mirrors in a lot of ways, you know, creating the perception that the stock price has increased, maybe to attract additional buyers, you know, whatever the motivation is. I don't know that this is particularly awful for GA. I mean, they've done some good things. They've reduced debt loads, things of that nature. Um, but I don't think the stock is particularly cheap here. And I shouldn't, sure, certainly shouldn't, wouldn't be running to buy it. It's just so puzzling. Why bother doing it if it doesn't change the value of the company itself? Why bother? It makes you feel good. I, I don't know. I, I, I have a hundred dollar stock yeah, prices. Yeah, you know, just like Culp said. That, well, we're a company that shouldn't trade like that. Okay, well then, don't take yourself to the brink of absolute financial disaster, and you know, don't do, I don't know, twenty six billion dollar acquisitions or more that, that are bad. terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, those are a couple things to do instead of the reverse stock split. They know that, obviously. I just think it's sort of like, you know, you're in the finals of Wimbledon and the other player defaults because they withdrew because they were injured and you fall to your knees and say, I'm a Wimbledon champion. It's not really being a Wimbledon champion. Although I would be this- very happy if that happened. <laughs> I mean, just to be and clear. you would fall to your knees and <laughs> yeah, you thank I, your lucky yeah, stars. One little thing on this, though. I mean, does this put GE, along with some performance and stability, in a better place to get put back into the Dow. So I, I, on the show, we talked about this. And at first, I'd kind of forgotten and gotten kicked out of the Dow. And I thought it was really a cheap move. But in fact, it's, it's really been, you think that they were they I, ever in consideration? I don't I'm not saying that re-entry? they think that they're you know on deck. But, it, it, you know, at a thirteen dollar stock, it would be it would be very insignificant in the sure. Dow if it got put back in. And this allows them I, I don't know. I mean, Brian Kelly, I mean, that's I was sort of wondering, you know, why would you bother doing this unless you're thinking about a, a price weighted. weighted index as opposed to a market cap weighted index like the S&P sure. 500? Because it doesn't make any difference unless you're in a price weighted index. And the only one is the Dow from which they are kicked out. I Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I hope they are not betting the entire company on the on getting into the Dow. I, I feel like that'd be a bad strategy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, again, a couple different things. PSA, if you buy General Electric stock because they did an eight-for-one stock, you deserve to lose money, number one. You shouldn't do that. And then half-jokingly, maybe they're thinking about splitting it now. Split it down to 50, (laughs) stock goes up because you can buy more. Holy cow. Wow. Uh, It's quite a theory. Genius. All right, coming up, we're cruising into GM as the company gears up to report earnings on Wednesday. We'll tell you what's under the hood when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Newell Brands. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, check out shares of Ford. Volatile today, the automaker's North America COO saying it will spend more on EV development than on gas-powered cars by 2023. Meantime, Ford CFO told investors that the company plans on bringing its dividend back as early as this year. While the stock was up more than 2.5% in the early session, closed the day out flat. Meantime, GM on deck to report before the bell on Wednesday. The stock is down about 3% since the beginning of July. But option traders are betting that a turnaround could be in the cards. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so we saw calls outpacing puts by a little more than three to one, although I would point out that over the last 20 days, the flow has generally been pretty bullish with calls outpacing puts on average by about two to one. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about five and a quarter percent by the end of the week after they report earnings. That's roughly in line with the 4.37 percent that the company has averaged over a similar time frame over the past eight reported quarters. The most active options Today, where the weekly 58 strike calls, about 6,000 of those traded for about $1.40 each, 
Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the news could be good and the stock could go through that $58 strike price by at least the $1.40 that they paid, which would actually be a move of about the implied move to the upside for them. Going to see some profits there. Aaron, what are you expecting for GM? I expect good numbers from GM, although somewhat hampered by their inability to produce and interested to see where their inventory is versus their... Because of the chip shortage. Yes, because of the chip shortage. They had to uh, um, idle some plants for some time. But it's more about the future, right? I think it's more about we want to hear what they have to say about their EV lineup and when we're going to see that. And, And also, I would love to hear some dividend news from them. I, I just think the profitability of the core business that exists now is where investors should be spending a lot of time. And I know that's not the sexy part. And if anything, I, I've talked about this hybrid multiple. I want to see them get a bit of an, ET, an EV multiple and an autonomous multiple and a hydrogen fuel cell multiple. But the profitability here for a company that's learned how to run their core business at trading, you know, really basically nine times is what's exciting. I think that's going to be reaffirmed. Sideways, uh, Jeff Mills, since about February, this chart. Yeah, it's been trading sideways for about five months now. So that's part of the reason I think I would want to own GM here. And, you know, there is a big opportunity in, in EVs. And Tim mentioned the multiple being too low. And I think that's probably the case. They're talking about spending $35 billion over the next five years. And uh, I, I'm not as bold to say that GM is Tesla at this point. But if you just look at the market values, about $80 billion for GM, $400 billion for Tesla, that gap is going to close. And I like the valuation for GM. And be sure to tune in for an exclusive interview with GM CEO Mary Barra. That's Wednesday morning, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right after the report. Uh, Mike, thank you. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Around the horn we go. Brian Kelly. You know, markets were a little weak today, but First Solar was not. FSLR, that's hot. Jeff Mills. Illumina, this is a long-term hold for us, but it actually looks like it's going to break out here. I'd be keying off that $500 level, and I'd be buying if it breaks above that. Tim Seymour. You seem to know about the Scorpions. Did you listen to heavy metal growing up? No? A lot, right? A lot of hair metal? So much. You should listen to BHP when they announce their earnings on the 14th. I think they're going to tell you iron ore prices stay high. There's a lot of demand there. In case you missed it in the small box, that was a big eye roll. Huge big eye roll. <laughs> Karen. Yeah, if we have uh, boosters necessary, I like CVS. That was good traffic for them the first time around, and I think the valuation is cheap, so CVS. All right, thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.